Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, Matthew here. I know it's been a while. I'm just checking in to update you on some exciting news. I got a new job, or a few new part-time jobs, actually, one of which is as a producer at the Architecture Foundation. Up until now, Scaffold has been a side project, something I'd work on during weekends or late at night. But with the demands of teaching and working as a project architect and the arrival of my second child this summer, there just wasn't any time left to keep the podcast going. Over the past three years of working on Scaffold, I've realized this project is more than just a hobby, though. It's the kind of work that I genuinely love to do. So, long story short, I took a leap and have landed very happily at the Architecture Foundation, where I'll be working on special audio projects, including Scaffold, with new episodes airing on a weekly basis. One of the things that has kept this podcast going up until now is the simple fact that you are listening, with some of you even supporting the show through Patreon. I can't tell you how grateful I am to everyone for keeping this project going, to my partner Scandalin for putting up with my obsession, and especially to Ellis Woodman and the Board of Trustees at the Architecture Foundation for believing in this project. I am so excited for what's in store, and I can't wait to share it with you. One of my goals now is to grow the podcast, turning it into a platform that supports a range of contributors and covers the full gamut of contemporary architectural culture. So please, rate it on iTunes and spread the word. Scaffold is back. New episodes begin on Thursday, December 2nd, but in the meantime, I thought I'd put one of my favorites down the feed. My 2019 interview with Farshid Musavi. Enjoy, and I'll see you next week. I think that um, architects have their own ways of coming to terms with the variability and complexity and um, randomness of use. This, this is a kind of universal problem in terms of how to make sense of um, the ir- irreducible complexity of life <laughs> and the way that people use a space that one has designed. Different architects have different methods for making sense of it. What I was drawn to in exploring your method is the way that you apply kind of precision to this complexity of, of use and of life. Um, the precision lies in the language you use and the, the kind of philosophical tradition that I think you're, you're being a part of, or you're participating in, in addition to people like Deleuze, um, you're in conversation with thinkers like Jacques Rancière. In fact, you were sitting on a stage with him at the Royal Academy not too long ago, um, talking about micropolitics. Um, and there's a kind of lineage, I guess, intellectually, that you've found solace in participating in, in order to make sense of how little control you have as an architect over the outcome of your work. I think you said it correctly, that I'm try- I've been trying and I continue to 
um, uh, make sense of actually um, you know what I what I do as a as an as a practicing architect um, you know architecture you know relates to people relates to culture and I'm interested in in understanding uh, in what way it makes a difference uh, and in what way it it relates to culture and society and people um, so I think that the, you know the, the diagram that you've just described um, maps, if you like, um, the process that I was describing before between affect and affection. So, you know, the architect arranges buildings, makes very, very specific decisions. You give the same brief to two or three architects, they will arrange them in different ways. Mm. And historically, the, the idea of style has been, you know, either belonging to, uh, you know, the architect uh, or, let's say, a period of time or a kind of a certain nation or geography, you know, that's how we've understood kind of style. And what I'm interested in is understanding the style of the building, not the style of the architect, the style of the building. And to understand that this, the, every building, you know, performs in a certain way because of its assemblage and, be, and, there, and, and, and therefore the, the kind of affects that it emits. Um, and that the relationship between the architect and, and people is indirect. So I, I'm actually not interested in randomness. I, I would take away the word randomness completely. Uh, I think that buildings are very precise, which is also what you just mentioned. Buildings are extremely precise. You know, we spend, you know, six to 10 years making extremely precise decisions about buildings. And that's because buildings need to stand up, they need to be safe, they need to be, you know, it, there are all kinds of regulations, you know, common regulations and, you know, uh, building regulations that rightly so, there are there for the, you know, the health and safety of people. However, uh, we, if, if, if a building just followed the regulations, then it would not be inspiring. You know, it would, every building would be like every other building. So what, what we architects do is to interpret those regulations, in, incorporate them, but go beyond them, go beyond them. And that's, we go beyond them through the way we make decisions about the physical assembly of buildings uh, to give them different scales, textures, colors, etc. And so buildings are very precise, but the way they perform is not in a deterministic way. They perform through affects. Are we coming to, con to contact with buildings not through the narrative of the architect who's gone, not through some kind of symbolism uh, that the architect may have uh, used as inspiration, if you like, to get to his kind of, to, to deal with his kind of um, creative process. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not against those, I mean, inside the creative process. But once the building is, is complete, the architect is gone and the building performs through its own actuality. What I'm interested in though is that, yes, the architect is gone, but I think through this insistence on engaging with your work critically uh, in text and in conversation that is recorded and becomes a kind of supplement to the oh, way yes, the building I'm, is Oh yes, I'm not saying architects don't have influence. Absolutely, so they are the ones who, who make buildings for what they are and they are the ones who are responsible for the kind of affects that buildings have but they stop there they don't tell people they cannot determine how people perceive those affects they cannot 
guarantee that people will walk away with the same thoughts and meanings and feelings and sensations and affections. Uh, that's, that's, I think, so it's both to include them while one is working on buildings, um, but to also actually work with their looseness, like that once, with, with all that precision that buildings uh, involve, that the way they are actually, their presence is both, if you like, is, is both precise but also uh, loose. I'm wondering why for you it's so important to have the theoretical work in addition to the architectural. Uh, and you might say that they're always interlinked. That might be the answer. But I'm still curious because obviously some architects don't feel the compulsion to write at all about their work. Right. Well, and I mean, if you, you, if we need to kind of remember that I'm also an academic. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, so, it, you know, and I've always been an academic ever since I've taught, mm -hmm. as I've practiced, so, you know, 26, 27 years. And so I have, I have the opportunity, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, to use my teaching mm -hmm as a way to think about architecture and to gain a certain distance. And obviously academia is, is interested in, in the larger way in which you know, we go, I mean I go to both help my students learn, but also to learn, to learn the, the field of architecture as part of a very, if you like, one that, is, uh, that plays a critical role in the construction of culture. Mm. And, you know, and, and that's why I think in, in that sense, one has to try to make sense of it, one has to situate it. Uh, and I do think that because, for example, philosophers are those who do try to generalize and kind of understand uh, the relevance of, say, cinema or art or music or architecture, you know, in the larger sense, it's a very good resource. Now, obviously, it's not interesting to apply philosophy to architecture. That's not what I'm interested in. But I, I, I'm interested in reading and, and understanding where is it that architecture, where in the work of which philosophers am I able to see a resonance with architecture? And so the reason why I gravitated towards, the, I didn't read Deleuze and then go and do the ornament book. I started actually, you know, looking at, 200 buildings and uh, trying to, and, you know, to redefine, if you like, the word ornament, which we discussed earlier, uh, um, in, in, in a way that would make it productive, useful in the practice of architecture today, mm. which meant questioning how it was, how it was thought of, mostly in kind of symbolic terms. And so, you know, it's kind of, you, I started digging into, you know, symbols, meanings, people, you know, what we do as, as architects and kind of trying to untangle this and say, yes, of course, you know, ornament uh, somehow is related to the construction of meaning and is to do with aesthetic experience. But what is it that we are trying to produce kind of through it? Uh, and I would say it's about uh, creating the you know using or creating buildings as platforms that that where where meaning is constructed but it's not people who generate ultimately those buildings alone mm. I listened to a conversation that you had with Charles Jenks 
and Diane Sedgett um, uh, as a part of the um, publishing of uh, your most recent function book on style in 2015. And um, Jenks was he was kind of getting in there and trying to untie certain knots he found uh, in, in the book that had to do around what he seemed to think was a, a denouncement of authorship in architecture um, and a kind of emergence of um, a style that is generated by the specific kind of function of the building to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, let me clarify. I mean, I, I mean first of all, I, I, I you know, have a lot of respect for, for Charles Jenks and of course him and I share interests in a number of topics, but we couldn't deal with them more differently. Mm. Um, and that's precisely, you know, you know he, he stands for those ways that I've tried to kind of, uh, you know, question. And I want to just to add those ways include cultural, symbolic, representational exactly. Um, exactly. aspects of exactly. building. So going to, you know, discussion of authorship is interesting because we live at a time, first of all, that uh, the idea that an architect um, has a style, let's say, you know, a kind of a signature of its own that is entirely kind of discreet and other than other people's it's kind of questionable because we are, you know, we are living in a digital age, we travel a lot, we see things, we get influenced by everything that is thrown at us. Uh, whether it is consciously or unconsciously, we look at things other than our own. And I'm actually more interested in how you take those kind of um, inspirations and and evolve them into something else than to see myself as entirely different from other people. So I'm interested in precedent, but the style book is all about putting, you know, architects that they may not even be aware of, of that, but I try to put things that are very similar, you know, page after, you know, uh, one another, so that we highlight their differences, not their similarities. Their similarities are a given. Um, and, you know, but what's interesting is what is it that shifts? I'm interested in the shifts. Um, so that's the discussion of kind of authorship because I, I think it becomes really questionable. Of course, there are people who go into great lengths to try to repeat themselves uh, over and over again and their work becomes recognizable, but I'm not really interested in that at all because I think buildings are not about the architect. Buildings are about people and how they perform standing here relative to, uh, you know, to, to, to society. So, uh, you know, so, so th there is that authorship. However, I am not saying that the architect is not the author of a particular building. I'm against authorship seeing understanding it as a signature where the building becomes a scaffold to represent the architect. So that's kind of the word representation. I'm not interested in that kind of idea of representation where the building is supposed to represent a nation, represent an architect, represent. However, of course, in each case, in each case, the architect is the author. The architect, despite the fact that we have uh, lots of different experts and consultants that we work with today, the only p person in the kind of the design team who pulls everything together and makes architectural decisions about them is the architect. Of course, working within 
within a very complex environment where the architect doesn't have always control, full control. But, but you know, with less or more control, in the end, it becomes the work of the architect. However, I, I, I go back to the building. I'm interested in buildings, not architects. And, and the building itself then each time performs in a certain way and, and has a style of performance as a, as a result of all those decisions that the architect has made. However, the building is independent while once the architect is gone. And, uh, and, and that's when the building becomes a bit more open and detached from these issues of representation. You know, we can uh, organize tours or write, uh, you know, uh, essays about buildings and, um, and give them, kind of put them in larger context and understand them in bigger ways, but, or even in symbolic terms. But that's not necessarily the experience of a building. I would say buildings are closer to how people understand contemporary art today. I mean, you know, you don't go there and think of it, you know, it, 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 the interesting thing about, you know, art is precisely the fact that it is so polysemic. You know, we stand in front of a work of art and we will all take away different experiences from it. And I think buildings have the same kind of perform in a similar way. Um, would it bother you if I, if I said that I could still tell um, if a building is designed by you versus someone else. No, this is a, no. This is a Farshi Musavi building and this isn't. No, but you are an expert. Am I? You, you are. You are an architect. You are an architect and you obviously know enough of my projects to be able to make that recognition. But ordinary people out there don't, don't know, you know the work of Farshi Musavi. They might know you know, Farshid Musavi, say, with the Victoria Beckham store, but that looks nothing. Well, they may never ever see the Cleveland Museum, or they may never ever see um, the residential building in, in Montpellier. And even if they do, Montpellier is curvilinear, the Nanterre housing complex is something extremely different, it's much more kind of angular. They are all different, they are each one of them, and there are, I, I, I'm absolutely interested in learning from your own practice and I'd like to think that I, I think uh, critically about our, our own work the same way that I've done with uh, other people's work and learn from it and therefore there are things you carry and but it's very important with every project to be also open to new set of trajectories and new decisions because no two projects give you the same kind of opportunities if you like or ingredients you know they will vary in scale they will vary in terms of you know so i i have no problem in you recognizing it but you are an architect and i don't think again buildings or architecture should be done for other architects i liked how in that conversation with jenks you were talking about a desire not to map your identity or authorship onto a building but to, in a sense, become the building. <laughs> at, one okay. point, at one point you said like, that you wanted to become a museum, <laughs> not that you wanted the museum to represent you. And to me, that's totally fascinating that um, in some ways like, there's this desire to hurl oneself into the realm of like, the material world <laughs> or I'd either identify with the material expression or imbue materiality with a certain sense of uh, 
I don't remember animism. saying it, but but I I like it. <laughs> I like it. We've got something. Ooh. Now a new sound, very melodic, a good solid sound. The music. instruments, the voices, and it's ready to go. Now, play it. I want to talk briefly about this transition uh, from your initial practice with um, Alejandro Zarpello, uh, FOA, Foreign Office Architects, to what you are now, FMA, Farshid Musavi Architects. and. Um, I guess, first of all, the experience of being a young, exciting practice uh, that um, in some ways defined a, a zeitgeist or participated in it. And so far as um, you are a part of the first generation of architects who are designing with computers and um, designing buildings with a kind of abstract fluidity um, and then kind of emerging from that and transitioning to your own practice. Um, I guess my question is... What's the shift? What's, what's the shift and also <laughs> like, is there an anxiety around relevance? Um, first of all, as one ages, and second of all, as one um, departs from a partnership and an identifiable, if not brand, then practice? I think my current, you know, the current anxiety of FMA is, is, is about situating um, architecture as a kind of uh, political practice. Uh, as one that is that is not just formal, and I think that um, we, I, I mean, I am, you know, uh, proud of the work we did at FOA, but I think at that time our preoccupation was to um, was to situate architecture in in the field of the, the digital, understanding the the kind of the the, the extra resources uh, intellectually also that we would have for the making of architecture using um, computers. Um, but I, 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 I don't think that, I think there was, you know, the, the reason why it became very recognizable was because there was a lot of repetition. I'm not interested in that repetition now. Uh, and I, I, I think that whereas the aesthetic of uh, FOA projects were understood as being part of, if you like, a zeitgeist of fluidity, you know, computers, etc. Um, I'm, 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 now computers are mainstream. I mean, to talk about computers seems quite banal because it's like a pencil for everyone. So we've, it's been assimilated, uh, you know, into the kind of the practice of architecture, mainstream as well as the not mainstream. Uh, so I think we need to kind of define the next set of problems. And I, I'm, I think it's, it's interesting to, to understand that the aesthetic of, of, a, of a building um, has certain agencies and that it's not to represent computers and fluidity. And sometimes fluidity may be the right affect to use if you're working with a ferry terminal or, a, or, you know, or an airport, but not if you're designing perhaps a hospital. You know, perhaps you should pursue other kinds of affects. Mm. And so I'm interested in the relationship between aesthetic and politics. So you could say even aesthetics and kind of function 
um, as being as being kind of spatio-temporal and being completely specific to certain contexts. Mm. That doesn't mean, I don't mean by context, just the physical context, but all the kind of the wider set of issues that, that um, you know, both limit and uh, give rise to, to the project. And to understand it as kind of as a, as, a, as, a, as a space of inquiry, as a space of experimentation, and to find, to look for what those kinds of experimentations and inquiries should be directed towards. And that should not be directed towards the recognition of the architect and authorship, but what it does for society at large, specifically those people who will, who will definitely you know, enter and engage with that building. I want to read something that um, you and Zara Polo co-authored as a part of a 2G publication in 2000. Um, and I think it was called like FOA Code Remix was the title of the essay, which was like a series of position statements, I think. Um, one of them was this, um, quote, um, we don't make developments in architecture by writing more about minorities, migrations, gender, globalization, or new cultural patterns, but instead by finding a connection between the emergent political, economical, and social processes and certain architectural techniques, geometries, and organizations. And to me, that, that was interesting given it was a statement made in 2000 um, that isn't exactly um, pushing itself away from certain inherently political subjects, but also is expressing an uninterest in them. Yes. And instead of focus on, as you say, techniques, geometries, organizations, this is part of the computational mm. kind of moment, mm. I think. But when you're talking about your anxiety now is to be political or to, to be concerned with the politics of architecture or all architecture's influence in the politics of daily life, I wonder how you, how you hear that statement now. I think it, 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 it was uh, I, I think it was an interest, but not necessarily uh, delved into, uh, and and I don't think there was I don't think that we had yet built um, a kind of a, a, a you know intellectually a relationship between those wider interests and the the kind of the instruments of architecture. So I, I think I can now look back at Yokohama and, and understand it and talk about it in political ways that I don't think we ever talked about it in those terms, but, but it is. So, I, I, you know, sometimes you do things also perhaps in, intuitively and uh, it, it takes time to actually understand. You know, a good project for me is actually when you are, when you don't worry about the result but that you, you worry about the decisions you're making. Mm. And that's when the project becomes something beyond what you had thought of to, at the beginning. And, but it will, be, um, it will be kind of um, charged with a lot of good decisions that, that make the building work in many, many different ways. It's a kind of building a complexity to the building through thinking constantly about the relationship between uh, buildings and many, many different arenas it, in which it belongs to. 
buildings, you can talk about them in relationship to the environment, you can talk about them in terms of obviously uh, you know, social issues, you can talk about them, you know, spatially. So there, there are there are many ways. Economically, you can you can you, know, you can talk about them in many ways. And so the architect makes lots and lots of decisions. And so it's it's more about you know immersing yourself in that in that process of making decisions and at any one time um, steer the project towards kind of these wider issues. But the precise outcome is is really more or less close to when you have to, you know, somebody says kind of stop thinking and it needs to go and be, get built. I, 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 you know, it's not about starting out with a clear idea for, for, the, for the outcome. Um, there's something I really wanted to talk about which was uh, with you, which was gender. Yes. And um, in particular, a small editorial you wrote in the Architecture Review in 2012 titled there should be no female role models, which at the face is quite an eye-catching title. And it was totally unexpected actually reading it because what I found was that um, you're making this argument about, um, well, first of all, derived from a theory of gender um, that you had encountered in the work of, again, Gilles Deleuze uh, and Felix Guattari. And so, at, at, Initially, there's a surprise there of like, how is she going to bring these very difficult thinkers into the pages of the architectural review? <laughs> and is she going to pull this off? <laughs> or is this just going to be a pretentious kind of strut? Hmm. And, and what happened was really incredible, actually, for me to read. You're making this distinction between being a woman and becoming woman. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> What you're saying is, whereas the idea of being a woman implies rebellion against being a man, becoming woman is productive. It's a process of disengaging from conventions and opening out to processes of becoming completely different. Um, I just want to continue reading because I feel like this approach to the subject of gender, not only in architecture, but in professional practice of any kind, is sorely lacking in conversations about gender now. So you go on to say that rather than arguing for female architects to be the same as male ones, women should differentiate themselves not only from men, but from other women too. Uh, where male architects have role models to emulate, the absence of any idealized female style, career trajectory, or behavioral conventions gives women the freedom to become and produce something as yet unheard of. And that just made me so happy because you kind of open up the possibility of becoming woman to everybody. Yes. Um, and this sounds completely ridiculous coming from me, um, a man, but um, there's a very, there's a very rich um, and open-ended attitude towards gender in those lines that I just read. Um, it's, very, it's very complex, and it's not something that usually comes off well. It's not, it's not immediately quotable and easily circulated, right? And so it takes a bit of time to address and think about and digest. But I really think that um, we ought to do that. <laughs> because it's, 
there's, there's a real value there in, in approaching gender as a more like multifaceted um, subject matter that is full of potential and that allows us again to kind of arrive at new approaches to essentially being ourselves. I mean, I think Deleuze is, uh, is amazing in many ways. I, I think what is wonderful, saying it just slightly different ways about the concept of becoming a woman, is to really think about any position of minority as a source of creativity and strength, uh, at looking at things from a different perspective and seeing possibilities that somebody who is not a minority is part of the majority, is unable to, to, to see because they see it through you know, the lens of the consensus. Uh, and so it's, it takes the discussion even beyond gen gender. It's, it's, it's about any kind of minority. And so anyone who adopts, who chooses to adopt a position of minority, so this is not just being born as a minority, but also adopting a position of minority, it means set, putting yourself slightly outside and looking at things from a different angle and pro providing, using that uh, kind of position as a way to produce, make decisions that um, you know, the, the majority doesn't make and therefore be creative and, and give, give to the world uh, a kind of an otherness that would otherwise not exist. And this can be done by any race, by any gender, you know, it is, it is about creativity. Ultimately, you know, if I, 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 of course, it's great if women uh, adopt this position and use their kind of position of minority, which we still are, I mean, I'm not sure if we will be forever, um, over time, a woman or Farshid Musavi, uh, you know, if she's understood as, you know, her, her, her gender will be in some ways irrelevant. It's the fact that my work is not the stereotype. My work looks different. And uh, that I'm interested in the kind of the creativity that, that architecture uh, can, can bring along, you know, uh, inspire people by not being the same every time. Uh, so it, I, I think it's a, it's a bigger concept, in fact, than, than really. It's wonderful that you know it, it, it basically erases the, the kind of the duality or polarity between men and women, uh, but it's it's to do with being uh, kind of uh, actually the minor, the minor rather than the kind of the major. And so you know, recently I you you mentioned earlier, for example, the NAW uh, initiative. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that that's done by, or, you know, set up by two men who are actually white, but it's an initiative for, actually, for, for, for uh, you know, minority writers. Uh, and, and so I think of them as having become themselves, if you like, a minority, because they are a minor, they, they are a minority kind of group of people that have acted in a certain way and produced the potential that others, obviously, the majority hasn't made. So that, that's a kind of an example of, of, I think it's quite an extreme and wonderful example of, um, you know, adopting this position and, and work, being creative by putting yourself outside and saying, what is it, you know, that 
that we should do? You know, what kind of initiative can we do? Mm. And what is it that is lacking? And, and kind of producing a, a writing platform that for people who would otherwise never ever have the ch you know, opportunity to, uh, to kind of become writers uh, and, and become good writers and known writers. Mm. Okay, so you're talking about the new architecture writers program established by Finn Harper and Tom Wilkinson and supported by the Architecture Foundation. So this is a, a platform essentially for aspiring architecture writers who um, are part of black or minority groups. Um, but you're kind of touching on the irony of the fact that it's established by two white men. Not the irony no, per no, se, no, no, no. but the fact that in, in, the kind of, in taking that initiative, that it Tom kind of and Finn have adopted the position of becoming woman. They've become a minority. <laughs> they've become a minority. They are, they, 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 they've, they've actually established themselves as minorities themselves. Mm. And which, which I think is, ve is a kind of two projects. It's, it's a writing platform for, for minority groups, but they have themselves turned themselves to minorities. By, by creating this, because it's, 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 it's about thinking differently, you know? Um, it's about saying, you know, what is it that we can produce that doesn't exist? And uh, so, I, yeah, I think it's a good example of that, wonderful. Mm. Um, I have a selfish question. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to be teaching this year, and I'm curious what advice you have for teachers um, given the fact it's been almost two decades that you've been teaching and practicing, actually. Um, this is what very open-ended. What advice? <laughs> um, I, I guess I, I think... Um, I, I think the best way to approach it is not to kind of so much teach um, students of architecture, but to create a kind of a learning environment. Because I, I think we go to school to learn how to become learners, uh, not to learn specific. I mean, we, we learn a lot of specific things, but, you know, for example, if you would set out, you know, a studio, whether it is on housing or um, museums or industrial buildings, they are all subjects that you know, the way we look at them today will evolve, you know, by the time, uh, you know, a student finishes school and starts, you know, their own practice eventually, whatever particular responses we have towards these kind of subjects will evolve. What will remain is what we learn thinking about those problems. Uh, and I think that, you know, to be able to create a kind of a learning environment for students um, is, I think, you know, the best you can do is, you know, if, if, if my students go away and know how to tackle any architectural problem, because they've, they've kind of, you know, learned a kind of a discipline of inquiry, I, I think that that's the best thing that I can do for them, rather than teach them how I did my housing project in France. Mm. Farshid, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, Matthew here again. If you don't already, subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you listen, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcasts. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for new episodes beginning next week. All right, see you then.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.